The rest of us this morning are going to be talking about courage. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to talk about Christian courage. So not courage in general, but courage that we all need as Christians because, number one, we live in a world that is tainted by sin, and it's therefore marked with suffering and ultimately death, and you need courage to face those things. Um, they're your greatest things that you will face on a certain level. And also, as Christians, because we belong to Christ, sometimes people uh, are not altogether happy with us. And if we want to seek to honor Christ and do what's right and pleasing to Him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, we need courage to be brave, to do what's right no matter what. And so 2 Corinthians helps us with this. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. And if you would go ahead and look at that, I'll read it aloud. And then we'll dig in a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. The Apostle Paul talks about courage. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I'll start with a confession. I can't tell you how many times I've read this through my Christian life and thought it was good and didn't think much else about it other than it seemed confusing. So, thankfully, I've got the greatest job on planet Earth and I get paid to study these kinds of things, even in the original languages sometimes. And it's not hard. It just took more time. So, thank you for paying me to be able to do that. Now, it's my job to try to make it simple to you and you'll say, that was simple. What's your problem? Why aren't you... Anyway, you get the idea. It's a super simple passage. It is about courage. It is about courage the, the Apostle Paul himself needs because he's part of a broken world and he's facing normal suffering, if you will. But he also is a part of a broken world where there's hostility against Christ. Even some of the hostility that he's facing comes from those who profess to be Christians. And he's having a tough go of it, but he wants to be faithful to Christ no matter what. And so he, by way of example, is helping us to be courageous, to stick to the priority of proclaiming Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning, hopefully to help you, it helps me, I think there are at least four driving forces here, four driving forces that, that energize courage. So we'll, we'll limit it to four words, and we'll break the text up that way. Four different words that, that, are, that, that fuel, if you will, or energize courage so that you can face normal hardship, and so you can also face hardship if you belong to Jesus by faith in Him. 
So that's what we'll do. We'll look at all the text again, but we'll look at it under the banner of four different words. And I want to help you. Um, you know, I, we talk about practical. We want practical. Well, this isn't going to help you to make a better lunch. Um, and it's not going to help you uh, do anything like that in the short run, even though a better lunch is a good idea. Um, it's going to help you big picture because in this world, as Jesus said, you will have trouble. And so this, this is big picture stuff, and it really ends up being the most helpful, the most practical, because it can help you to maneuver life. So I hope it helps you. The first real driving force for Christian courage on my list is confidence. Confidence. Confidence in God, confidence in God's promises, confidence in God's provisions. And if you look at verse 1, you'll see it there in chapter 5. So 2 Corinthians, if I said 1 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 5.1, look at the confidence that fuels courage. He says, for we know. Confidence word, right? We know. He doesn't say, for we hope so, for we would like it to be, for we feel. He's speaking in terms of the, terms of the objective, certainties. Confidence, and it's going to make him bold. It's going to make him. It's going to make him um, courageous. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly body, our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. So what is he getting at here? We know that if the tent that is our earthly body, our earthly home, is destroyed, he's using a tent for a for a metaphor, a word picture, right? all this rain and storm today the last time I slept in a tent my son who was my oldest son who was young at the time it was my uh, oldest son who was young and our little dog who was a puppy and I was sleeping right through the storm we were at some wakeboard competition in Kansas City and the dome tent was at our faces because it was storming so badly so we didn't get a home the next night but we did rent a hotel and you get the idea right uh, tents are temporary they're not as good as houses they serve a purpose the apostle paul's likening our present existence in this body using the tent metaphor it's temporary there's something better happening and he says we going to have we know this we have confidence my question for you is how how could he say we we know this well, he could say we know this because of what's happened, and he's already talked about it, what, what, what Christ has done. That, that Jesus Christ came here, he became one of us. Uh, he, he was a representative for everyone who would believe in him, and, and he died for our sins. And he was raised for our resurrection as well, so that we would be guaranteed new life. So as I so often say, Paul's not talking about uh, faith in faith. He's not talking about, I hope so. I would like it to be this way. He's saying because of the physical, in time and space history, bodily resurrection of Jesus with eyewitnesses, we know this. Jesus himself talked about this happening. Okay, So we know this as well. John 14, listen to this. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I... Let's listen to this. This is, this is confidence talk. Jesus says, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you also may be. And you know the way where I'm going. John fourteen nineteen. He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. He's going to ascend. But you will see me because I live, he says, you also will what? You also will live. 
So that's why the Apostle Paul can be so dogmatic. I know we don't like that word, but it's, it's a settled conviction. This isn't up for debate based upon the reality of what Christ did because of what Christ said in explaining what he did. We know this. You can have confidence. And if you have confidence that no matter what happens, you're going to be resurrected if you believe in Jesus, you can be courageous. You can, you can stick to the script. You don't have to compromise. Omaha Bible Church doesn't have to compromise to somehow maneuver because we, have, we don't need to do that. We can be courageous about what we say, what we do as ministry, to be faithful to Christ like the Apostle Paul's wanting to be. Courageous because of confidence. We know this. Well, let's, let's progress on. We know that we have a building from God, a house. House is far better than a tent. That's pretty simple. Not made with hands. And that's even better than my house. <laughs> so, right? What's better than a house? A house not made with hands. This is supernatural kind of house. He says, eternal in the heavens. And, and if it's in the heavens, it can't be plundered, it can't be destroyed, it can't be burnt down, it can't be attacked. No, it's in, heavens, in the heavens, so it's safe from God, eternal. Look at verse 2. For in this tent we groan. What's associated with groaning most naturally? Oh, right? Frustration, bad news, burden, suffering, difficulty. Right now, that's, we're in the groaning business because of hard life. But then even if you're living a Christian life and you're honoring Christ, sometimes it's going to be extra groaning for you. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So the groaning is associated with, oh, I want what's better. Oh, I can't wait for that. I'm longing and anticipating for that which can't be assaulted, that which can't be hurt, that which can't be broken. He's got the right kind of perspective here with confidence. Then we go on in verse 3. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked... So we're not just unhinged from physical reality. God is not anti-physical. He's pro-physical, but we're going to get something replacing something else. So the Gnostics wouldn't have liked that because they thought the whole problem was physical. No, no, we go from one physical thing to something else physical. We're not left, as my friends say in the South, naked. Um, no, we're going to get something better. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal, that mortal is associated with death and suffering, may be swallowed up by life. And I circled the word life and drew an arrow up to verse 1 where he describes it as eternal. Pretty straightforward, but let's keep going. There's more. Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing, so God is preparing us for this eternal life, for this eternal dwelling, even through the here and now difficult times, the groaning, burdening times, God's using it to prepare us. It says, is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And notice even the word guarantee is another confidence kind of word. It's a sureness kind of word. God has prepared us, even through the suffering, to long for something else. This is not as good as it gets. This is not heaven on earth. Heaven for us who are on earth is secured, but this is not it. This is associated with burdens and groanings. 
But there's something better. How can we know this? How has God prepared us for it? Well, through the sufferings, yes. But He's also prepared us for it because He's given us His Spirit. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit who is a guarantee. It's the same word that He uses in the original text in the Greek language where He translates it uh, here, guarantee. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So it's God's uh, authenticating. Yes, Pat Abendroth belongs to me. And I'm, I've sealed him with the Spirit and it can't, he can't be unsealed. Um, it's, he, he, the Spirit is the down payment, the earnest. All this is meant to build confidence. The same Holy Spirit who regenerates, which leads to us believing in Jesus, is the same Spirit ultimately that we have now indwelling us, the same Spirit who raises us from the dead. Confidence, 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 confidence. We know this. It's guaranteed of this. So now here's what I can do. I can boldly face normal hardships, even big ones. And I can also boldly face the extraordinary hardships that come to me because I'm a Christian. I believe certain things are true about people. I believe things about sin. I believe things about Jesus being the Savior. I believe things about you need to believe in Jesus. And sometimes hostility comes as a result of that. But because of this confidence that I have in the objective, not just in my feelings, oh, let me tell you, it makes me feel good. But what's driving it is actual what God has done and what God is doing. It's it's important. It's motivating. I could be brave. I could be courageous. This this church can be brave and courageous because we have confidence in what God has done and is doing in Christ. I like John 14. We've already read John 14, but John 14, verse 16, Jesus says further, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you through the power of the Spirit and then at His return. It's so important, and I know I emphasize it a lot, that we're not talking about these things that happened on Mount Doom. Okay? We're talking about, we know these things because of things that happened on the Mount of Olives and on Mount Zion. It's how we can know these things. And we probably don't think about that enough. Lots of people I know who are Christians almost think in terms of all this happened because of Tolkien's Mountain Doom or something kind of, sort of. As a broken record, I, I like to take people to Israel not because you need to have some sort of uh, experience and drink water out of the Sea of Galilee as we've seen people do. What in the world? <laughs> not a good idea. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not about that. It's not a pilgrimage. That was the word I was thinking of. I just want people to know that it's not Narnia. Jesus came to earth born of a woman, born under the law, right? He was 
executed and absorbed the, the, the undiluted full wrath of God voluntarily because the wages of sin is death. He never sinned, but he's a substitute who voluntarily out of love for us did that. But in real time and real space, so we could say with the Apostle Paul, we know this is true. Because not only did he really die, he was really raised from the dead and he really ascended bodily. And so we can say, we know these things. Oh, I, it's not, oh, I hope someday, you know, when I breathe my last breath and the angels come and get me, I hope I get my wings and I hope I can get used to playing harps and, you know. We don't have to just like make things up. And it's not just this kind of, I feel this way, so I hope it's this way. It's, he's speaking in terms of, no, I, I, the reason I'm bold is because I know these things. And so I remind you and I remind you and I remind you and I remind you. Courage comes from knowing things. Let's move on to a, a second word that can help us uh, see that what fuels the courage. Um, certainty fuels the courage. Number two, clarity fuels the courage. Clarity of perspective. This is in verses 6, 7, and 8. There's clarity of perspective. He says, so, so we are always of good courage. Verse 6 goes on to say, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Home, home in the body, away from the Lord. Am I going too fast for you? <laughs> right? Just that moment where you go. This is just clarity of perspective. Super duper uber simple. If I'm at home here, I'm not with the Lord. And he's already established that what's better is with the Lord. So if you can be that clear and that you know obvious, it will help you to think clearly and to even be courageous. The worst thing that can happen is I can breathe my last breath. And then I'm at home with the Lord. Clarity of thinking. So he goes on to say in verse 7, For we walk by faith, that we conduct ourselves, we live our lives by faith. Trust in God is what that means. Trust in the Savior, the resurrected one. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that's a great verse to take out of context, but I wouldn't recommend it. In the here and now, we're, walk, we're trusting God, but we, we, we can't see Jesus. Not that He hasn't been here, not that He hasn't been seen, but I can't see Him now. But I'm walking, I'm living my life because it's so clear. I walk by faith now, not by sight, but it will be by sight. It's, the sight is the better part. It's going to be by sight. That's clarity. And then verse 8 says, Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I don't know why exactly they translated it good courage in the English Standard Version. It's just one word. Uh, it's the word for courage. But I do like it because, um, you know, there's an ugly kind of courage. Uh, there's a I'm a jerk kind of courage that doesn't love other people, which wouldn't be appropriate. He's, he's not hating those persecuting him. But he is courageous in standing up against them. So I think it's a good way the translator chose to do it. We're of good courage. He's clear on this. Bolsters courage. 
If we're, not in, if we're in one place, we're not in the other place, and the other place is better than this place, it's pretty helpful. Pretty helpful. As a quick aside, then we'll keep moving on. This text right here that we just looked at has been really important for Christians throughout the centuries to pretty much understand reality in two realms. Existence in two realms. Simple, right? You're either in the body now, in the earth now, right now, as you are, I think most of you are in existence. (laughs) Or you breathe your last breath if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and then you're with Him. Two states of being. So, it's a purgatory killer verse is what it is. Okay. Um, There's not another category in that if you do enough and try hard enough and if enough people give enough money and if enough people say enough prayers and enough people light enough candles over enough, uh, a a long enough period of time, then maybe. Remember, he's speaking in terms of knowing. And... I'm either here or I'm here. And this is meant to encourage Christians. If it's going to be a bazillion years in purgatory, I'm not very brave. I'm not very courageous. Because it really doesn't sound like a party. (laughs) But I can be bold and courageous if I'm either here in this life or I breathe my last breath and I'm in the presence of Christ. And by the way, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you breathe your last breath, you'll be at home with the Lord. How can that be? What about sin? <laughs> That's why we have a Savior. Okay? The just for the unjust, First Peter chapter 3, so that He might bring us to God. It's what He does. That's why we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. First Peter 3.18 When my mom who was a member of his church for a long time, breathed her last breath. We praised God that she wasn't suffering anymore. We bawled our eyes out because we were so sad because we didn't want to lose my mom. But we didn't start praying for her soul. We started praising God for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, we know things. So some of you will be at home with the Lord probably in the next year. Might be me. Might be you. Might be someone you know and love. But it is why we trust in Jesus, the one who has victory over death. And if you know He has victory over death, it can help you to be courageous, to live for the glory of God, to live for the honor of God. Talk about practical. Clarity of perspective. Let's now go to number three. So we're doing four words that summarize four driving forces that build courage. Number three is the word aim. Aim, as in focus, as in priority. Look at Paul's aim here in verse nine. This this right here is worth the price of admission, just verse nine alone. So whether we are at home, that's this life, right? or away, stepping into eternity, right? We make it our aim. We make it our ambition, some translations say. We make it our focus. We make it our priority. We make it our resolve. We make it our settled commitment to please Him. 
I love that verse. In my personal notes, that's what I circled in the whole text. So whichever one it is, I'm here, or I'm on my way there, or there, I make it my priority to please Him. So if you want to understand, Pastor, how do, what should I do? How should I think about my Christian life? Because I've come to see that I'm a sinner. I've come, I've come to see that I need a Savior. I've come to see that God requires perfection, and I have not met the requirement. And so I've trusted in the work of Jesus and His life and His death, His resurrection, and I'm trusting in Him. The Bible says I've guaranteed eternal life. Now what should I do? 3.9 is helpful, isn't it? Well, now, Pat, what I would like you to do, just always think in these terms, seek to do what pleases Jesus. Have a nice day. <laughs> right? Now, we want to know what that is, so we want to know what Jesus says. And so that's why we look to see what Jesus says about different things. But it, it, it does come down to that. He secured our eternal destiny... So we want to honor Him. We want to live out of gratitude unto Him. So there it is. So if I can keep it with that sort of aim, my aim is to please Christ above all else. Well, when, when someone is attacking me, my aim is to please Christ. I'm not going to compromise what's right and true and good and honorable to Christ to please the person, even though I would like to please the person. And even then, I'm not going to Maybe um, fight fire with fire because I'm actually supposed to love my enemies. That would please the Lord. So it's complicated in one sense, but not in another. I want to make it my life's ambition to do this, and that can really keep me on track. Because He's worthy. How about even because there's no greater good? It's, it's rational, right? So let me, let's just play this out. If, you're, if you are the greatest person who ever lived, please come forward. Please don't. <laughs> we have a special service for you. <laughs> if you're the greatest person who ever lived, you should make it your ultimate aim to please yourself. That would be reasonable. But if there is a greater person than you, that means there's a greater good. And so if there is a greater person than you, it would be insane and irrational for you to make it your ultimate aim to please yourself. That, that, that doesn't make sense. It's no wonder you have a life that's out of whack. But if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one and only one who conquered sin and death and reconciled us to God, name above every name, the ultimate good is for you to seek his pleasure. And that's called sanity. You're in touch with reality. And so, maybe not always, but it can grow at least to feel right. Because you're doing what's right. It's what you've been recreated to do. We make it our aim to please Him. Maybe if you would just look ahead. We're not going to get there this morning. We'll do it next week. But I think 14 and 15 are really helpful um, in helping us to understand what He's getting at. In verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. So he, he's, he, he's loved us. 
And that drives us. Because look down at verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he loves us, is, is crucified and is raised, and so now we want to live for him. That just makes sense. Makes sense. Aim. Our aim is this. It's a great way to summarize the Christian life, and I want you to know and make it obvious. you, You already know this, but just to point out the obvious. You have plenty of opportunities living in the 21st century to live for the pleasure of Christ. And when it's going to take courage to do so. Okay. The list could be long. But, but let's think in terms of, what does Jesus say about human beings? Well, Jesus acknowledges human beings are made in God's image, so they're special. But Jesus teaches that human beings aren't inherently good. Jesus teaches that human beings are sinful, violators of God's law, and they need a perfect Savior. And that doesn't sell. Okay? In, maybe just listen if you would. Luke, Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, he's so respectful. Jesus turns it on its head. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Thunk, right? I don't believe I would have said that. <laughs> But Jesus knows what he's doing. He's dealing with someone who thinks of themselves as as spiritually, morally good and acceptable before God. Jesus knows this. Jesus wants to make it clear. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. Jesus isn't saying, I'm a sinner. Because this guy doesn't believe that Jesus is God and the God-man to begin with. But he's fleshing out the reality that this man doesn't know that he has a problem. A problem with God. This man thinks that God helps those who help themselves. First person who finds that Bible verse, I'll give you a hundred bucks. I used to do that when I used to do stuff for FCA. Okay, boys and girls, get your Bibles out. You ready? I'd have a hundred dollar bill that I stole from my wife's purse or something. And so, emergency money, you know. Got a hundred dollar bill. I promise I will give it to you. Whoever can find the verse that says God helps those who help themselves. Man, it was like a windstorm in there. They're all looking like crazy. There is no verse like that. It's, it's, it's Second Americana, chapter 2, verse 72, right? No one is good except God alone. Now, it doesn't mean I, I can't be nice about how I try to communicate that. Uh, I'm going to make it clear that I think I'm a sinner who's violated God's law. I'm worthy of condemnation, not acceptance before God. But that's also true of everyone else. It's why we need a Savior. It's why we need a substitute. I can't communicate Christianity without communicating that, by the way. And neither can you. And so you're going to need to know that your priority is to please Christ and agree with Him about the human condition, or you certainly aren't going to please Him. Uh, Jesus said from the very beginning, this is Matthew chapter, I'm just shifting gears, different hot topic, uh, Matthew 19.4, from the beginning God made them male and female. Try that one. So, as somebody who believes Jesus is the truth and spoke the truth, 
I believe that from the beginning God made male and female. And that's going to get me called all kinds of names. And that's just this week. I don't know about next week. Can I be nice about it? Yes. Can I say there's forgiveness for any kind of sin? Yes. Can I be kind and gracious? I hope so. But I make it my aim to please Christ, and I can't please Christ if I say Christ is wrong. I agree with Jesus. Well, how dare you have such a worldview? How arrogant are you? Don't you want You know, I hitched my horse to this tree, and once you hitch your horse to a tree, it's hard to unhitch it. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> People say, be careful what you hitch your horse to, right? You're commi- anyway, I don't even like horses. but so, I'm a Christian. I believed in Jesus for my eternal destiny. I'm united to Him by faith. I make it my ambition in life above all other things to please Him. And I know that people who don't think they have a problem will never turn to Him. But Omaha Bible Church is going to have opportunities to be courageous because of this aim. But we need to have the aim. You need to have the aim. I need to have the aim. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's going to be another opportunity for me to be courageous that there aren't many paths to heaven. Because if I say there are many paths to heaven, then I have to say Jesus was wrong. And that's not making my aim to please Him. Going to all the nations, the Great Commission makes no sense if there are many ways. If there are many ways, we should never do the Great Commission because people might reject Jesus. Out of love we go. He's the Savior of Jew and Gentile. That means all kinds of people. Every tongue, tribe, nation, as the book of Revelation says. They need to believe in Jesus, a one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I'm just telling you things you know. These are countercultural things that are going to end up leading to you being uncomfortable at best. Losing your job, perhaps. Who knows what else? Let's be equipped. Let's please Jesus no matter what because He and He alone was raised from the dead and promises eternal life to everyone who believes in Him. Finally, let's go to number four. Number four, accountability is the word. There's accountability. That's a driving force for Christian courage. I'm gonna be, I want to be bold because Jesus loves me and I want to please Him, but I also am going to answer to Him one day and that causes me to have a certain amount of courage to do the right thing. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hmm. That's accountability. It's accountability because there will be an evaluation. Not a perfect illustration, but when I knew my dad was coming home, A dad, I knew he wasn't perfect, but I knew that he loved me. I knew that I knew that I knew that he loved me. No doubt ever that he loved me. But when my sister said, Dad's coming home, I see the car, we would scramble, right? Quick, water the dog. We had to water the dog every day, pour the bowl out, and wipe it out in case there's any nasty kind of stuff in there, right? You got to do that. I give her new water, new food. It was my job to brush the dog. We had a Pomeranian, which is like a ball of... You know, the yarn, if it falls over, it can't get back up. I had to brush the dog every day. I at least said I did. 
All this stuff to get ready because dad's coming home because we're accountable. Not because if we didn't do it, we would be condemned and no longer his children, but because we, he was our dad and we wanted to please our dad. I would suggest to you that we should think of this text in those terms, okay? It's an error to say, we're not accountable. Grace, man. I live however I want to live. Please, Christ? Eh, my debt's taken care of. I just kind of do whatever I want to do. Grace. Peace, right? (laughs) That's a mistake. He's saying, no, we all must appear before him. It's also a mistake to conclude we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that means we might be condemned. I think that's a mistake too. It doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit what the rest of Paul says. It doesn't fit what Jesus says. I personally, and we don't need to have a division over this and, and have a war, he's writing to Christians as a Christian. Now everyone will stand before God for judgment. But here he's writing as a Christian, to Christians, and I think he in particular has the judgment seat of Christ in view, where, whereas if some of you carry a Reformation study Bible, I agree with the view that says this is a time of rewards. This isn't a time of punishments, condemnation. Let me prove it to you outside of our context and then in our context. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? You can't be condemned if you've trusted in Christ because he was already condemned at Calvary and was raised from the dead. There's no condemnation. It's the negative side of justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore there is now no condemnation. Condemnation is the negative side, found guilty under the law. Uh, justification is the positive side, declared righteous, declared an upkeeper of God's law. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Or how about John chapter 5, verse 24? This is Jesus himself. Truly I say to you, unless uh, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And as Louis Burkhoff says in his systematic theology, when Jesus says there is no judgment, he means condemnatory judgment. Because there is a judgment. Read Romans chapter 5. But there's not a condemning judgment. Okay, I don't want you to take the cross-references words for it, but I kind of do actually. But I, I want to help you see how to, how to read the Bible and not be confused. So go back if you're not already in chapter 5. When we read verse 10 and it says there's a judgment, it, it, it can't be a condemning kind of judgment or that wouldn't make sense because what about verse 1? We know we have a building from God, eternal in the heavens. We couldn't know that. If we might be condemned, it wouldn't even make sense. Verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You can't make a guarantee for a resurrecting spirit if you might be condemned. It just doesn't even make sense. Furthermore, it doesn't make sense because earlier in the book, he's already talked about um, righteousness, a ministry of righteousness from God, and that ministry of righteousness is a ministry of reconciliation, chapter 3, verse 9. 
Chapter 5, verse 21 is going to also emphasize this. We'll get to it next time. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be... To be he made him who knew no sin... I've memorized it in a different translation, so I'm going to reread it, not in the New American Standard, but the ESV. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. There we go. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, the upholding of God's law by the provision of God is what he's getting at there via substitution. That's a long bunch of different ways to say, read read your Bible, read it in immediate context, read it in greater context, and then you have to do legitimate, good nuancing. Everyone will face God's judgment. Christians will face a certain kind of judgment where there's no possibility for condemnation. But it does motivate us because we want to please Him. He's already loved us and given Himself up for us. That motivates me, okay? Motivates me. I'm in the family because of his love. I'm not fearing condemnation, but I am fearing disappointment. So it motivates me to do the right thing, okay? So when you get the tests back and they're not what you wanted to hear for you or somebody you know and love, Or the pink slip, if they still give those, I don't know. Or the calamity of whatever sorts, because the world is filled with trouble. Or if it's because of your distinct, unique Christian convictions. You have to know that this is just for a time. And knowing that the difficulty and suffering is just for a time, you can keep perspective and you can, 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 and you can continue to seek what pleases the Lord Jesus because it's the ultimate good. Okay? It's a pretty simple passage, but a very helpful passage. We should pray now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ above all others. Um, we're thankful, uh, even the way you use difficulty, even the way you use difficulty in the life of the Apostle Paul, so that he might depend upon you and not himself. Lord, help us to depend upon you and not ourselves. Uh, We do want to be sensitive and kind and gracious. We want to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We want to care about this life. We know that you care about this life. But we also want to keep perspective that there is something greater and it's something greater because of what Jesus has already accomplished. Thank you for giving us the Spirit and and sealing us with with the Spirit that we can see Him working in our lives. We can see the fruit of the Spirit happening. We're thankful that we believe because of the regenerating work of the Spirit. We're thankful for the unity of the Spirit that is beyond what we can comprehend or explain. Please equip the men and women and the boys and girls who are here this morning to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of circumstance. Help us as a church to do that very thing as well. In Jesus' name, amen.